you realize very quickly that no amount of pleasure or any of that type of stuff can offset a lack of purpose. And that was a big aha moment for me because those two and a half years of cognitive dissonance, that's when we owned a McMansion in the suburbs. I had the sports car. I had the highest title that I've ever had. I had the highest salary and benefits I've ever had. And I was the most miserable that I had ever been in my life. And so that's, that's a big wake up call of, okay, something needs to change and you can't just, you, you can't really buy yourself off, I guess, as a way, as a way to say it. Um, you know, you can't, you can't offset the lack of purpose with all these pleasures. So that was, that was a big moment for me. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you? Got you? Today on the podcast, I sit down with one of the world's best synthesizers of knowledge and true wisdom, and that's Slow.co founder Kyle Kowalski. Now, Kyle's an ex-marketing executive turned corporate dropout and solopreneur who found and created his life purpose after an existential crisis. You know, one of those moments where you wake up and you say, what the hell am I doing with my life? Well, on this episode, Kyle is going to guide us through how we can all become more intentional about living, how to find and create our purpose with his tool, and what key questions we need to develop mental mastery. Please enjoy this conversation with Kyle Kowalski. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I put together something really special just for the listeners of this podcast. Now, after all the years studying, learning from, and getting to coach some of the world's most successful people, I've taken the 13 most impactful lessons and compiled them, and I want to send you those 13 lessons right now, and all you have to do is click the link below that says 13 lessons, and I will send you some of the most impactful lessons I've learned from people like Disney CEO Bob Iger, the great basketball player Michael Jordan, and so many more. So if you want that right now, all you have to do is click the link below that says 13 lessons. I want to read this quote I pulled from you, and it's over the last five years, I've invested significant time and energy trying to find and create my life purpose. I want to blur the lines between work life and work play. So work play and life are all one and the same, and making money is just a byproduct of who I am. First off, I just love that quote, but I would love for you to even expand on that. Um, just just let, let, me, let me get inside the mind, and when you hear that, what's, what's going through your head here? Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's dissect that a little bit into two or three different things. So one of them is the difference that I've learned between work and play. So work to me is, uh, energy depleting. So anything that you do in life that is energy depleting, um, and then play is energy regenerating. And it's fascinating to think about my life when I was in my career, you know, you come home from a day of work and just be completely drained and exhausted and not have energy to really do anything else. Whereas today I get to the end of a work day, if you could even call it a work day, <laughs> and I feel like I could just keep going forever. You know, I wish I'm at the point now where I wish there were more hours in the day and more days in the week, mm-hmm. which is not something I would have ever said <laughs> during my career. It's like, you know, how quickly can you get to Friday? <laughs> and then how long can you make the weekend seem? And, you know, how short can you make the work day? Um, so that's one big thing, uh, difference that I've seen is that finding what you consider your play and that therefore is energy regenerating for you is a, is a huge factor in finding purpose. Um, another one is passion. So passion has become a dirty word for some reason. Um, if you search stuff online, you'll find like people are like, don't follow whatever you do, don't follow your passion. 
But what I've found is that you actually have to have passion, assuming passion is synonymous with you love it. Um, even this idea of like a double negative of like, you can't not do it. It's almost like an obsession kind of thing. It comes so natural to you. It's authentic to you. Um, so you're finding that thing that feels like play and that you can't not do. Um, it's almost impossible to even call it work anymore. You know, someone would, some outside observer or an alien looking down or something would, would watch me and say, wow, that guy works a lot. And I would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I feel like I'm just playing all day, hmm. but one person's play looks like work to somebody else. So that's why it's really important that you go, everybody goes through this in their own unique way to figure out, well, what does play look like for them? Um, and then in terms of the byproduct piece, I actually heard this from, uh, I believe first from Maria Popova of Brain Pickings, the Marginalian now. Yep. Um, she, had a, she had a quote that goes along the lines of that for her, everything that she's ever done has been personal development first and business development as a byproduct. Mm. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, that's exactly how I feel in terms of figure out purpose first. And then if you want to optionally make money as a byproduct of kind of the flywheel in motion of you performing your purpose, that's kind of a lever that you can turn on if you want. Um, and some purposes, you, and the other thing is you don't have to just have one purpose. You could have many purposes um, in life. They can change over the course of a lifetime. So it's not one thing that's set in stone and then you have it forever. Um, some might make money, some might not, but there is a way to kind of do it where, um, there's like an optional lever where you can turn it on and say, okay, money will be an optional byproduct, but first and foremost is figuring out purpose. What is your purpose? So the, it took me actually years. I think I didn't even create this line until sometime last year. So many years into the journey, I kind of, and, and again, this is kind of the phased evolution approach of it is, you know, I've figured out my mind, at least on the psychological level, figure out who I was. An equally important part is figuring out who you are not. Um, so that way it gives you some focus in terms of, okay, I know I don't want to pursue these things. That gives me some focus on these things. But the way that I describe my purpose now in a single line is synthesizing or synthesizing lifelong learning that catalyzes human development. And the way that I I think about that is that's exactly what I feel like I've done in my own journey. And this kind of goes back to the transformative learning concept. Um, but I feel like I've done that on an individual level. And I feel like what I'm sharing allows people to do that on a more collective level. So um, that's how I've summarized it to date. I have no doubts that that'll evolve <laughs> over the coming years. Uh, but it, as an attempt to get it down to one line, that's, that's what it is right now. Can you actually talk about that evolution and being okay that it will change because so many people right like they're searching for their purpose and they think it's this thing that's set in stone for life and i would just love to hear you talk through that yeah this was this was another aha moment for me i was actually working on uh, i have an ebook called ikigai 2.0 which walks through the exact process that i went through to find my own purpose and it's still the process that i recommend people follow today um, it's it's a little bit different than the viral four circle ikigai diagram that's floating around on the internet these days. Uh, it takes it to the next level. Can you just give um, a, a quick that, flyover of what the ikigai is, like that background origin story? Because your work with the ikigai, especially the 2.0, I think is incredible. And we're going to link that up. So I just want to give some background here on what the ikigai is. Yeah, sure thing. So the way that ikigai, if anyone's heard of it, they've probably seen this four circle Venn diagram, and it's the intersection of uh, I believe the original one is what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs and what you can get paid for. And sure enough, this was when I, when I mentioned I had my whiteboarded wall office and had everything up on the walls and, and, uh, 
whiteboard marker and everything, I actually had that four circle Ikigai diagram taped up to my wall. Um, so I had learned about it at some point in late 2015 or 2016. And the way that it was created though, th this obviously led me down a path of, okay, once I found it, I was like, this seems like an interesting framework. I'm going to dive deeper on it. <laughs> and what I discovered as I dove deeper on it was that it actually is not equivalent to the Japanese concept of Ikigai. So what happened was the guy who created the viral meme, he had no ill intentions or anything like that. And I actually think he's done the world a big favor because it's planted a seed of Ikigai in people's heads. Um, but what he did was he took a Spanish concept for purpose, which was those four circles of the Venn diagram. And then he watched a TED talk from Dan Butner, who does all the Blue Zones work, uh, where people li typically live to be over 100 years old. There are five or six different Blue Zones on Earth. And one of them is in Okinawa, Japan. And that's where the that's where Ikigai originally came from was um, or at least was helped popular be popularized was from Dan's TED talk. So what this guy did was he combined both of these things together, took the original purpose diagram and just instead of saying purpose in the middle of those four circles, he just had it say Ikigai. Um, so once I dove deeper and this was over a few years was I figured out that the key difference is that making money is not one of the major four circles. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's not even really a consideration in terms of the, the truth about Ikigai. Um, but that's where in, in my version of it, I figured out it can be an optional byproduct. It doesn't have to be. So you remove it from being a requirement and it's more of like a, an optional byproduct. Mm -hmm. Um, but the way that my uh, Ikigai 2.0 system works is it still starts with what you love, what you're passionate about. And that's the first thing, because each step is a checks and balance on the prior step. So if you don't love it, you're just not going to stick with it. Yeah. That's yep. that's kind of like the foundational level. And that's where, you know, when you get into entrepreneurship and solopreneurship and things like that. I mean, I've tried probably five different. I don't even know if I'd call them businesses, but <laughs> entrepreneurial ideas over my life and have brainstormed 100 more and and before slow actually gave it a go on on one other one but um you know you lose the love for it over time and and if you do, if you're not in it for the long haul it's going to just be really hard to build that compounding effect um, because that doesn't come for years onto yeah. the journey so the first thing is what you love the next one instead of what you're good at i have it say something along the lines of what you're encoded for or what you're wired for because I've learned in life, there's a big difference between what you're good at and, and uh, how you're wired. And again, it, and a difference between what you're good at and what you love. I think everybody has uh, examples in their life of, yeah, I'm good at that, but I don't love doing it, yeah. which again is going to be one of those deal breakers of, well, you're just not going to stick with it then, um, even if you're good at it. And then the last piece is what the world and or humanity needs. Mm. And so that kind of gives another filter of instead of it just being a selfish, you know, true circle Venn diagram of I love it and I'm wired for it. But you could just, you know, assume everything I was doing on slow was just kept up here in my head and I didn't share anything with the world. That would just be the first two circles. So the last one kind of takes you full circle in, in a way in the hero's journey of coming back to society of, well, how can how can how you're wired and what you love benefit the the world at large in some way? Mm. Um, and then I kind of go through a monetization process of if you want to monetize that, you can take that a step further. Can you actually, I, I'm just curious, what you were doing in the early days that allowed slow to compound to where it is today? You, you've got some business acumen here in, in terms of what you were able to do. Uh, and I'm just curious what you focused on early that has now paid off in the long run. 
Yeah. So I guess this is where stumbling into that marketing career, specifically digital marketing, uh, because the, I had four different jobs during my career and I think seven different positions in those four jobs over a 10 year period. Um, and three of those four jobs were at digital marketing agencies. And I worked in everything from account management to social media, to digital analytics, to research and account planning, to brand strategy, to multi-channel marketing, you name it. So that is the plus side of stumbling into the marketing and advertising industry was I gave myself, you know, a kind of a self-taught lesson in terms of all of these things, digital marketing. So that was already kind of, uh, you could consider those hard skills versus how you're wired, which would be more like soft skills. But I had learned those hard skills over the course of a decade. So that includes business acumen, that includes brand strategy and branding. Um, you obviously learn a certain bit of human psychology when you work in marketing and advertising. So, uh, and that was also just a personal interest of mine throughout my career was the psych psychological aspect. So that's the plus side of, <laughs> of the 10 year career that I spent was, uh, kind of going through all of that and learning all of that specifically the digital side, because when I first started thinking about this, I actually had an email that I wrote my dad on Christmas day. Actually, it was Christmas Eve, but it was after midnight <laughs> uh, during my existential crisis. But it, let's just say it was Christmas Day 2015. And the email was like a couple lines and it says, came across uh, the idea or just bought the domain name slow.co, uh, just discovered the concepts of intentional living, slow living, simple living, minimalism, voluntary simplicity, all those types of things and, and was really inspired by it. And so I said, I think I might do something with this. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's when I had bought the domain name was like Christmas Eve, 2015. And then the first post on the site wasn't until mid 2017. So it was almost a year and a half later of all of this kind of marinating. Again, this was my period of cognitive dissonance and all the things I was learning about life and myself. Um, but I just started slow and everything. If you go back to the first, you know, 50 posts on the site, maybe even hundred posts on the site, all of it is intentional living. And what I had discovered and why this was so important to me um, and so impactful was I had no idea that there were people on the planet <laughs> that were living lives that were not the typical lifestyle inflation thing of get the job, get the better job, get the higher paying job, get the house, get the bigger house, uh, you know, get the car, get the sports car, that whole rinse and repeat lifestyle inflation, um, hedonic treadmill, hedonic adaptation thing. I thought that was just the norm and that's just what I had been doing. And, um, I hadn't questioned anything about it up until my crisis. And once I found this kind of, you could call it contrarian way of living, that there was this alternative path. I initially saw it as an escape of, Oh, this is how I can get out of my career. Um, I had never been that, uh, motivated by money. I'd never been that motivated by luxury things. Although we lived and learned the hard way we, my wife and I have done the lifestyle inflation thing. And you realize very quickly that no amount of pleasure or any of that type of stuff can offset a lack of purpose. Mm -hmm. And that was a big aha moment for me because those two and a half years of cognitive dissonance, that's when we owned a McMansion in the suburbs. I had the sports car. I had the highest title that I've ever had. I had the highest salary and benefits I've ever had. And I was the most miserable that I had ever been in my life. And so that's, that's a big wake up call of, okay, something needs to change and you can't just, you, you can't really buy yourself off, I guess, as a way, as a way to say it. Um, you know, you can't, you can't offset the lack of purpose with all these pleasures. So that was, that was a big moment for me. 
Hey guys, it's Sean, and we are about to dive right back into this episode, but before we do, I wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes, and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast, and my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course, and you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. But in terms of the initial days of slow, it was all intentional living, and it was just me showing up to an audience of one, you know, by myself. Um reading books on slow living, reading books on simple living, providing book summaries on those. But even even my book summaries back then are are really bad <laughs> compared to compared to today. So it's an evolution even in that sense of, you know, the skill of reading, the skill of note taking, the skill of uh, thematically organizing content from a book, the skill of connecting dots between books. So all of that has also progressed um, over the years as well. A lot of lanes I want to go down right now. I, I would love, though, thinking about what does actually intentional living look like? We, we just got the encapsulation of what it's not there. I'm just trying to think through your modern day lens, what, where you're at today. What does it mean to you? Yeah, so I use intentional living as kind of the highest umbrella term that encapsulates concepts like slow living. And when you think of things like minimalism, what minimalism is to your stuff, like your physical stuff, or let's just say your things, what minimalism is to your things, slow living is to your time. So therefore, you have your time aspect and you have your space aspect. So it encompasses both of those. There's also a concept called voluntary simplicity, which means, you know, you could go do this lifestyle inflation thing, but you voluntarily and intentionally choose to not do that. Um, there's also a concept called downshifting, which is, um, you know, you could figure out some of the stuff um, that you want to work a little bit less. Uh, so you downshift from 40 hours a week to 30 hours a week or 40 hours a week to 20 hours a week, or you downshift your career completely. <laughs> um, so there's a, a concept called downshifting. I would say minimalism and digital minimalism, decluttering. Uh, I would even put financial independence and lifestyle design all under this umbrella of intentional living. Okay. Uh, so actually I have a post on the site where I have dissected my own lifestyle design. Uh, a year or two ago, I, I went through that and looked at, you know, if I could design the perfect day, the perfect life, what would that look like? And again, this is going to be unique to everybody, you know, based on how you're wired, what you love to do, all these things we've talked about already. Um, but it was eye opening for me to realize that, oh, I'm actually wired in a way that I love learning more than I even love traveling or even more than I love entertainment or even more than I love, you know, all these other things that we you know, we always say, um, or there's this, there's this idea that people just want financial independence so they could go retire on the beach and, and, you know, drink cocktails all day or whatever. But I was like, I would actually hate doing that. <laughs> I would do that for a week or two maybe, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that's not going to be a long-term thing for me. And that's not even like a, a goal that I want to pursue. So then the idea is, well, what is it? If it's not that, then what is it? And you kind of go through this process of figuring out, well, what does intentional living look like for me? What does enough, uh, in terms of like money or stuff or whatever, what is that enough point? Um, so I discovered the financial independence retire early movement in, in mid 2017 that had a big impact on me. Um, just these alternative ways of looking at life and making you question things in your own life of, oh yeah, why are we spending money on this? Why are we doing that? Um, do we really need this house? Do we really need that car? 
Um, and it changes your relationship with, um, with all the things in your life. It changes your relationship with how you spend time, changes your relationship with yourself. Um, so it's, it's, and I call all of this stuff slow stage one. And maybe some people are already on board with this, but for me, this was kind of like the first step of figuring out how to go from busyaholic to unbusy. Um, and, and so I did a deep dive initially on like, well, why are we so busy and why am I so busy and how do I get out of this and, and all of that. So, um, it all started there and that's, that's kind of given me the space and life to go deeper on all the other stuff since then. Hmm. Well, I think two really important points here, Kyle, is both giving yourself the necessary space required to be in, in this state that you can actually analyze these things, but then also being a bit proactive here, right? Like playing offense with life and, and working towards these things. It, it's clear that you've put in a tremendous amount of work to be able to get to this place. So I just admire that. I just want to make sure people are understanding that as well. I think it'd be really fun though, if you actually dive into your day and not so much, yes, I want to hear about what you do day to day, but I'm intrigued by the thinking behind the actions that you take. That's what I think would be really fun to explore. So would, would you be, would you mind opening up about what you do day to day and then the thinking behind those actions? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know that I have a typical day. Um, in terms of, I guess, to get into some of the practical and tactical weeds, um, I do use time blocking. So in terms of productivity hacks or anything like that, the one that I have found that is super helpful for me and, and has been for years now is some people call it time boxing, some people call it time blocking, some call it time chunking, um, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's That's been really impactful for me because what it does is, is it allows you to take your to-do list, which could be on a notebook or, or post-its or and a note-taking app on your phone, it allows you to take that and put it into timed slots on your calendar. Mm. So that, people say, it allows you to take your to-do list from a to-do list to a to-done list. Mm. And it allows you to, to think through, well, how long are these tasks going to take and what's the priority order and things like that. Um, so I do use time blocking, uh, but really my calendar mostly looks like just blocks of time where I'm like, okay, here are the things that I wanna work on today or whatever. But uh, my day can look really different if I'm reading a book um, it might be blocked for, you know, a few hours here and there to be able to just deeply read the book. And I can't, I can't read with music. <laughs> so that's the one time in, in life where I'm, I'm not listening to music, but for everything else, I'm pretty much listening to music. Um, how do you and, know uh, what the day is going to look like before that? You said all, all those days are different. So how do you know day to day what it's going to look like? I think it's something that you just figure out as you go through it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that I ever had a plan going in other than knowing like, yeah, this, this feels like the right thing to pursue. And, um, again, a lot of my stuff is driven by, and still to this day, seven over seven years later is still fueled by my crisis, which means I'm just trying to figure out why and how to live hmm. and sharing and sharing what I learned along the way. So a lot of it is still searching. A lot of it is still reading. Um, uh, I was never, people are surprised to hear this, but I was never a reader growing up. Um, reading was actually my worst subject in school <laughs> because I would read so slowly. Um, and I would never finish time tests on time. And when I did, I was the last person in class to hand my stuff in. Uh, but reading comprehension and reading were always my worst subjects because I read so slowly. But now I realize, oh, I wasn't actually, well, I am a slow reader, but <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a thorough reader than a slow reader necessarily. And I remember at one point I got in trouble in, in my work career because my emails were too long too long, too detailed. And now I'm using that weakness or perceived weakness at the time as a strength, because a lot of my content goes a lot deeper and is more long read type of stuff. 
Um, but in terms of the day-to-day life, I, I think it's something that you just figure out over time because now what I'm doing, I'm still doing all the lifelong learning. I'm still reading a lot of books, still doing a lot of book summaries. Um, and I'm still doing a weekly newsletter. So I kind of have these ideas in my head of like, okay, I know I need to send out a newsletter. I know I am kind of doing a deep dive on this subject right now. So I need, and I want to read these books on it. Um, so it's kind of this intertwined process of figuring out what you want to, what questions you want to go deep on, what you want to learn about, and then kind of creating a plan of action of, uh, of how you want to tackle that. And then the, the thinking behind it is something that I feel like comes as a byproduct of all that other stuff that I mentioned, because when you're reading something or learning something, you'll, again, this kind of is the idea of being able to articulate something that you couldn't articulate before. So some author or some writer will say something like in a way that you intuitively know, but you couldn't put into words before. And that's what I feel like leads to these epiphanies and aha moments and things like that, where um, patterns or themes or insights are coming into play that you just couldn't put words to before, but now you can. Or equally as important and maybe more important is uh, you read something that is completely opposite of your lived experience and you want to dive deeper down the rabbit hole of, okay, why is that so different from, from what I'm thinking? Are they thinking about it in a different way? Is this more common? So you start going down that path. If you have an open mind of, you know, why is this, uh, the opposite of, of what I'm thinking. And you can learn a ton that way too. Mm-hmm. One thing you mentioned a minute ago is kind of just that web, web-like structure. I would love to know about your web of goals and, and how you approach that. Yeah. So this is something, uh, the idea of a web of goals comes from Jacob Lund Fisker, who created early retirement extreme and has a, a book by the same name. And this book is just awesome. I mean, it is the combination of systems thinking plus lifestyle design, uh, fellow INTJ, I believe <laughs> there seemed to be a lot in, in our corner. <laughs> yeah. There seemed to be a lot in our corner of Twitter, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, because apparently they're underrepresented in the, in the total population, but, um, but the web of goals is the idea of trying to connect one thing you do with at least one other thing you do. So Jacob gives an example of, um, well, I want to be healthy and I want to minimize, uh, my transportation expenses. So I'm going to just sell my car and get a bike and I'm going to bike to work. And now not only did you minimize your car costs, but you actually maximized your health benefits because you're exercising on the way to, to and from work. Um, and now you only have the, you know, the bike cost itself and the maintenance of the bike, which is much cheaper than a car. And so it's like a two birds with one stone kind of thing. And so you approach this with everything in life. He, he gives another example of, you know, live close enough to a grocery store that's within walking distance. So same kind of thing. You could give up the car and you could walk to get groceries and, and, uh, get your exercise that way. So there are a million examples like this, but the idea is to never do something in isolation and always consider kind of the second or third order consequences of, well, if I have this or if I want to do this, how do I have that be a uh, like a mutually reinforcing thing for another goal that I have? So if I want to get healthy, if I want to minimize costs, if I want to uh, pursue entrepreneurship, um, you know, you could think about this in terms of what I just call entrepreneurial math, which which is um, if you, if you don't spend a lot of money, then you don't have to make a lot of money. <laughs> and if you don't have to make a lot of money, then you have a higher likelihood of being successful in entrepreneurship, doing whatever you want, because you have less money that you have to make. Um, so it's, it's kind of thinking like that in terms of 
everything is interconnected and how can you find leverage points in your own lifestyle design to be able to connect those things together. Hmm. I'm thinking about some of the big things. A few minutes ago, you were mentioning you come across certain themes that just light you up. You finally put words to them. What are the, the big themes or ideas that you've come across, let's call it in the past few years, that have just radically shifted how you approach life or your worldview? So the the way that I think about this now is almost in terms of like stages or phases that I've gone through. And so I think about this in terms of what I call four slow stages that I've gone through. And some of those big ideas in those stages are some that we've touched on. So we've touched on intentional living. We've touched on the web of goals uh, or lifestyle design. Those would fall into slow stage one. Slow stage two is all about life purpose and finding purpose. Uh, so we talked about Ikigai. Um, there's another concept called the lottery of birth, which is really fascinating. And we can dive deeper into that one if you'd like. And then in slow stage three, I consider all about mental mastery because once you have purpose, you start thinking about the, it naturally leads to you. And once you start doing all this, get to know yourself things and get into deeper into human psychology, you start wondering about things like, okay, I feel like I found purpose, but what is purpose? How did humans evolve to have purpose? Is purpose just some psychological thing in your mind? Is it something deeper? So you start going deeper into your own mind and the human mind, and that gets really fascinating. Uh, but that's where I came across concepts like human development theories or psychological development theories. Uh, in other cases, they're called vertical development. Uh, but that idea of horizontal versus vertical development was really impactful for me. Horizontal development is the idea of what you know, so knowledge, information, skill sets, things like that. But vertical development is uh, more along the lines of how you know something. So as you horizontal or as you vertically development or, or vertically develop or psychologically develop, how you relate to what you know changes. And that has just completely rocked my world in terms of understanding that and and mapping that to my own journey and seeing all the similarities it's shockingly similar how some of these theories line up to my own lived experience and i'm and i'm sure many others as well mm. um so human development has been a big one for me in that kind of mind stage um learning about biology and psychology again this is the idea of taking an interdisciplinary approach to your learning so instead of just focusing on one thing um i was initially interested in psychology which got me into spirituality which you could consider beyond mind which brought me back to biology <laughs> and and how biology affects your psychology so you start making all these connections cross-disciplinary and and it just it just gives you kind of this interconnected uh charlie munger or, or warren buffett calls it the lattice work um in your head but uh i view it more as like a interconnected uh, knowledge network than a lattice work. Most people think of a lattice work as like the thing on your fence, that 2D, you know, fence divider thing, but it's really this 3D thing where the more nodes you can interconnect in your mind, the better. Um, so that was a big concept for me as well. And then, um, what, what does it look like then, when you come across one of these concepts? I'm thinking about like the evolution for Kyle, right? Like idea hits, something resonates inside. And then w what does it look like for you? Because what I appreciate about you and your work so much is the depth you go to and the clarity you can bring to it. So I would love to know what that process and journey is like for you. Yeah, so when I discover something, again, it's kind of like that process of uh, something lights up inside of you. You have this aha moment or epiphany or a question that you're asking yourself that you hadn't asked before. You're seeing something in a new way that you that you hadn't seen before. It can even be reading the same book uh, you know, a few years apart and you're like, 
it's almost like reading a different book. It's yeah. the whole idea of, you know, no one steps in the same river twice. No one, no one reads the same book twice because it's not the same book and you're not the same person. Um, so this whole idea of kind of, you know, exploring those epiphanies or aha moments or things that don't uh, line up with your lived experience, those kind of give you the gateway into, okay, I, I, this is something I want to explore deeper. Or it's it's a problem that you have in life. You know, it's you, uh, just like my crisis. I was like, it's something I have to figure out. Um, so it can be problem-based learning um, as opposed to something like project-based learning or, or there are a million different types of learning. But um, once you have that gateway in, again, this is just how my mind naturally responds to this is it's like, okay, time to exhaust everything possible <laughs> about this subject. I want to learn every single thing because the bigger your worldview, the bigger your landscape that you're looking at a subject, uh, just the more comprehensive and holistic it is. And the more you see the dots connect within that landscape, and the more you see the dots connect outside to other related adjacent concepts that are that are similar or connected in some way, shape or form. So it's that whole idea of, you know, you pull on one thread and it leads you to another, to another, to another. Um, and now at this point, I'm kind of just following all those threads and seeing where they lead. I don't want to get too nuanced with this question, but as you're coming across new things, what are you actually doing to to store them so that they can actually connect clearer for you? So in terms of uh, personal knowledge management, um, I used to use Evernote. Now I use Obsidian, but I don't do a lot of like backlinking or anything like that. I, I view the purpose of like a second brain as being a supplement or complement to your first brain. What I want is a really good first brain, <laughs> the one that the one that's actually in my head. I don't want this like perfectly designed and backlinked second brain. That's just like a, a storage system for me. And sure, it can be helpful and uncover new ideas and things like that. But what I really want is this really densely interconnected and holistic first mind. Mm. Um, and I'm actually working on a course right now um, that'll be called Synthesizer that will share every in and out and behind the scenes detail. I'm actually going to do screen sharing of exactly how I pick books, exactly how I read books, exactly how I take notes, exactly how I synthesize multiple pieces of content together. So uh, I'm planning on actually doing a deep dive on all of those exact questions that you're that you're talking through. And it is it is pretty nuanced. So it's it's tough to give a succinct answer on it. But um, it's one of those things where, you know, people say the whole quality versus quantity dichotomy. But what I've, what I've learned is that's actually a false dichotomy. A lot of this comes through quantity first. So quality is actually a byproduct of quantity. So, for instance, how I mentioned that my book summaries are when I look back on my initial ones, I, I think they're trash now. <laughs> but that's only because of the quantity of having done, you know, hundreds of them now that you get better over time. And the same thing applies to how you select books, how you how you filter books, how you uh, evaluate information. All of those things are skills that improve through quantity. And so it's quantity first and quality as a byproduct. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Believe me, I, some of these early podcasts, I even feel like months ago, I, I just cringe at myself. Um, <laughs> where it's a constant, and, that's, and that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a constant evolution. But but one thing I appreciate is even just the massive amount of work that you've been able to, to, to produce over all the years. Has there been a mindset of yours that you feel has just been so impactful and beneficial to delivering and producing the quality work that you do? In terms of a single mindset, honestly, I'm not exactly sure because my mindset has changed so much over the years. Oh, can I would you talk say about the evolution? Mindset, 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say for the first 30 years of my life, uh, which included a 10 year career in marketing and advertising, um, I had the typical high achiever mindset. So I would say I've always been realistically optimistic. I guess that's part of my kind of wired mindset from the get go uh, as well. But in terms of the high achiever mindset, you know, that led me down the path of uh, good grades. I had this weird fear of disappointing my parents, which they never explicitly said, uh, you better not disappoint us. Yeah. But um, somehow that got into my head and that kind of drove me to this like really hard work ethic, really high achiever. Um, so everything was about getting good grades throughout school. And then obviously that translates into the career that you end up going down the path of. Although I kind of stumbled my way into the marketing and advertising career, I thought I was gonna go into graphic design through high school but ended up in marketing and advertising. And uh, it wasn't until I was 30 uh, working the typical crazy hours of marketing and advertising, but I had been working the 60 to 80 hour work weeks for six months straight, which was new to me. <laughs> the ebbs and flows of marketing are pretty common. You, you always hear stories of people, you know, you have a week there, two weeks here and there where you have the crazy hours and then it kind of, you know, ebbs and flows back down to something more reasonable. But this was six months straight of the the insane hours. And I was a certified workaholic, busyaholic, uh, you name it, that was me. Um, and that is finally what got me to a breaking point in this self-diagnosed existential crisis that I had at age. It's funny because I've told some people it was 30 years and eight months old and they go, oh my gosh, I think mine too was 30 years, eight months old. So there must be something about your early 30s or maybe even late 20s where, where this is more common. But um, that was a big mindset shift for me because that took me down a path of asking all the questions, the deep questions in life, mm -hmm. you know, like, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? That's that's when all of that kind of started. So that obviously led to a big mindset shift. And, and we can dive deeper into that uh, or circle back. But um, I guess what that ended up leading to was about a two and a half year period of what I would call cognitive dissonance in terms of all the stuff I was learning about myself and about life versus how I was still living, which was showing up to my nine to five job in, in marketing. Um, but that uh, that has led since then over the last spin. This year will be a, the eight year anniversary of my crisis uh, later this year. And the mindsets that have kind of evolved throughout those eight years have really progressed and gotten deeper and more holistic um, over over that time period. So it's really it's really tough to say this a single mindset, but that's definitely how I got started and um, what's gotten me here today. Well, Kyle, let, let me ask this then. There are a lot of people who go down into that deep, dark pit and unfortunately never come out like you did. So what allowed you to do that? So this is an interesting kind of dual layer uh, answer that I'm going to give. The first answer is when I was in this existential crisis, uh, imagine, you know, me coming home from a typical nine to five day, uh, eating dinner with my wife, probably not working out. <laughs> She'll go to bed and then I would get back online and work from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., like pretty much every night. And then, you know, stare at the ceiling and not be able to fall asleep and start asking all these questions. But my mindset in the midst of it was this is my problem to figure out. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like a this is on me. Uh, I need to figure this out for myself. Um, if I don't feel purpose in my current career, well, what is my purpose? What is purpose in the first place? Um, what could it be for me? So that was the that was the initial mindset was this is my problem to figure out kind of thing. Um, and all the questioning and all the answering, it was kind of one of those, I, I tell people, you know, if you could see my Google search history <laughs> during that time, it would, you'd be amazed at all the questions I was asking Google and all the things I was searching and, and trying to find answers to. 
but that was kind of my mindset was it was a problem that needed answering and that it was my problem specifically to solve. Hmm. Um, since then, in the in the couple of years um, uh, leading up to this, I've actually realized that I never questioned my own mindset that allowed me to do that, which is an interesting, that's kind of the second layer is, well, how did I ever get that mindset in the first place that allowed me to respond to the crisis in the way I did? So that's kind of an interesting second layer to it. Yeah, one of the intriguing things you just brought up is the accountability. The, the This is my responsibility. I, Kyle, need to get myself out of this. I, I found that intriguing because so many people like to push that off. They're going to play that victim mm -hmm. mentality and not want to take full responsibility. So so that's just an intriguing one for me uh, to, to kind of think about it for you. But 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 I'm wondering, as you're going through that, and you said you're, you're searching Google, trying to find all the questions, what were some of those early influences or even early questions that really helped propel you even forward more? So a lot of my crisis, I've kind of figured out, because my wife actually had her own version of this two years after me, but hers was more extrinsic. So it's more of like, what's the nature of reality? What's the universe? All the stuff kind of that we consider outside of you, whereas mine was intrinsic, which kind of relates to intrinsic motivation as well, in terms of my questions were, why am I here? What is my purpose? Um, and things like that. So I kind of went deep down the path of the whole know thyself process of all that self-inquiry of trying to figure out, well, who am I and how am I wired? And, and that gets you into all the stuff of like, well, what's my personality type and what's my Enneagram and what's my strengths finder strengths. And, you know, you start, you start doing kind of all these self-assessments of trying to figure yourself out. But at the time, and this was late 2015 when I had my crisis, there wasn't a lot of, of stuff online about this. It's amazing to me. I actually just recently went down the same rabbit hole just for fun this time <laughs> in terms of trying to see, well, how has content on the internet evolved? Even the Wikipedia page for existential crisis, there is a Wikipedia page for it. <laughs> um, it's exponentially longer today than it was back then. And the content is exponentially better and the, there's more quantity of it. And so from an inspiration perspective, there's just a lot more out there to help guide people today, which is wonderful. Yeah. On, on one side, it's wonderful. On the flip side, it's probably there's probably more because more people are experiencing it. Right. Um, but it kind of goes hand in hand. So I think I think people are in a better spot today. 2023 is a better time to experience an existential crisis than 2015. <laughs> How impactful and important you, you mentioned understanding the, the Enneagram and personality types. I, I, I know you identify as an INTJ, just like myself. So obviously I've, go, I've gone through every single personality type testing you can ever imagine, read every single thing you can imagine on it. I'm wondering for you, has any of that been helpful? Has any of that helped change the way you actually live your life? Yeah, it's, it's a phase that I think is a really important phase to go through um, because I know there are people that kind of write off all of that stuff. They almost consider personality typing or Enneagram or things like that in the category of astrology. But I found it to be much more helpful than that in terms of it gives you it gives you words to articulate your experience of life that you already had a kind of felt feeling or knowing of, but you couldn't put it into words before. And that process has been extremely helpful. And that's been a, a huge aha moment and a, an epiphany for me in terms of being able to articulate something that you already knew, but couldn't put into words before knowing how to put it into words. Um, so I think that whole process of getting to know yourself on that kind of psychological level is extremely helpful. Um, Clifton Strengths Finders was really big for me as well, just understanding because it kind of pairs hand in hand with your personality type. Same with Enneagram, they kind of all uh, complement each other. And so the more of these things you do, I, I've done, I've, I've done a whole handful. I did, uh, I did disc, which a lot of people in the corporate world at least have done. Um, there's another one called the imperative purpose profile. 
But it's funny when you look at all of these together, they give you a more holistic picture of who you are, at least on the level of your psychology. And I think that's really important. That helps me kind of figure out that I have what I call or what Howard Gardner calls a synthesizing mind. Um, a lot of my strengths and talents and just the way that I'm naturally wired kind of all pointed me in that direction. Um, but again, that was something that I intuitively knew but couldn't put words to until I had the understanding of what that even meant. What, what is a synthesizing mind? It's kind of a mind. So Howard Gardner has a book called, I believe it's called The Five Frames of Mind. He's also uh, the person who created the theory of multiple intelligences. Um, if if there's anyone who can be considered famous <laughs> in the world of academia, Howard Gardner probably falls in that category. But um, it's been, I actually can't remember. I think there's one that's like the disciplined mind. There might be one that's called the creative mind. I can't remember all five off the top of my head. But once I read the description of the synthesizing mind, I was like, that is exactly how my mind works um, without forcing it to work that way or anything else. It's just how it, it naturally seems to work. Uh, but it's a mind that kind of is combinatorial. Um, so Maria Popova has a concept. Uh, I'm not sure if she created it or she just helped popularize it, but there's a concept called combinatorial creativity where you're taking all these different inputs and you're kind of looking for all the patterns and the themes. Uh, a lot of what I do with my book summaries and things like that on slow, everything is grouped by like a thematic analysis. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at all these different quotes and people and disciplines and taking an interdisciplinary approach and kind of putting the pieces together and connecting the dots. So another way that you could describe a synthesizing mind is like an interdisciplinary dot connector, uh, knowledge integrator, um, a general term is generalist, um, uh, as opposed to like a polymath, some people call it a philomath. Uh, so that's more of like a love of learning. So all those kinds of, of things I kind of feel like are synonyms for each other in terms of how this type of mind works. So then walk, walk me through existential crisis, start to un uncover your, your deeper sense, your deeper self, start to realize what you're really good at. How does that then evolve into what you're doing now with slow? Yeah, so existential crisis was in late 2015. I then spent uh, the entire following year, all of 2016 in my free time, because keep in mind, I was still employed for two and a half years post crisis. Um, and those were actually rougher years than the crisis itself. So the crisis itself lasted about six weeks, although you can't put a dead end <laughs> on a crisis, but uh, the acute the acute portion in the midst of it was about a six week period. Um, but then of course it lingers and you try to figure things out. And I spent the entire following year and really started buckling down on trying to figure out, well, what is my purpose? If I could, if I could try to figure that out, what would that look like? What does that even entail? Um, that was really the, the entire next year and all of my free time. <laughs> I had whiteboard paint up in my office uh, at our house at the time, and the entire four walls were covered in just trying to figure myself out. Um, and then that kind of led into 2017 as well. Um, 2017 was actually the first blog post mid 2017 was the first blog post on slow um, the site now actually just last week across the 500 post mark um, in the year since then which is just insane to think about but again that's just a naturally compounding thing of starting small and sticking with it um, i think what i figured out part of what i figured out was i've always been and i've always had entrepreneurial dreams i think i've always been an entrepreneur at heart uh, my dad was an entrepreneur um, it wasn't something that I ever really thought about, but I think it was deep down always there because I actually started to work on entrepreneurial side projects in 2009. So during my entire 10 year marketing career on the side, I was 
I was dabbling in entrepreneurial stuff. And I think it just took me an existential crisis and um, all this cognitive dissonance and finally kind of running out of options in my career of attempting to find purpose there when I couldn't to acknowledge and pull the trigger on the fact that, oh, I'm actually an entrepreneur who's trapped in a marketing career. <laughs> and and it was something that I had just stumbled into because, like I said, I, I went to school in high school or, or focused in, in high school on graphic design, but I was up until 2 or 3 a.m. in high school doing art projects, typical perfectionism problem of a high achiever. And uh, so when I went to college, I was like, well, I can't keep staying up all night doing art projects. Maybe I'll try something else. And I, I don't have a conscious memory of, of picking marketing and business administration as like, yeah, this is like something I'm really passionate about. It was probably more of a process of elimination. Like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Well, how about general business? Um, and then, you know, before you know it, uh, one decision leads to another and you end up graduating and then it's like, okay, I guess I got to get a career in marketing now. And I stumbled into, uh, I randomly met a guy who was the, uh, COO at a local digital marketing agency in Cincinnati through a friend. And sure enough, I ended up down the digital marketing path. And <laughs> 10 years later, you wake up and say, how did I even get here? <laughs> so I think a lot of it, a lot of it was, uh, was that, but, um, figuring out kind of figuring out that I, I thought I was an entrepreneur at heart, um, having the crisis, trying to figure out purpose, all of these things kind of converged together at the same time, um, where I hit a tipping point or boiling point in my career and then figured out like, okay, it's time, it's time to actually at least get the entrepreneurial bug out of my system. I got to give it a go, at least try it. Maybe I'll fail. Who knows? There's no guarantees, but, um, I got to at least give it a try. What do you say to those people who might be just before their own existential crisis or even in the midst of it? Like what, what did you do to help really get out of that, start getting positive in terms of where you're going in that direction? I'm just wondering what brought you more clarity during that time that could be helpful for someone else. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think the first thing is just being willing to search. Don't, don't think there's a question that's too weird or too out there or too abnormal to ask yourself. Um, and you'd be surprised once you start searching stuff online, you'd be surprised at how many other people are in the same boat as you. Hmm. Um, especially today, there are a lot more people that are willing to talk about this type of stuff and are going through something similar. So I think that would be the first thing is, um, just start questioning everything and go on a search for answers to those questions. You might not, not find a conclusive answer, but what I think you will find on the opposite side of the existential crisis, you know, the light on the other side of the tunnel, after you get out of the dark night of the soul kind of thing, um, you have a newfound perspective on life, not only just your own life, but on life in general. And I think that was one of the biggest things for me was you have to, you have to go through it. And yes, it's tough to go through it. And there's, there's uncertainty and lack of clarity, but all of that questioning does lead you out the other side and in, in a better place. My crisis was so impactful for me that I actually can uh, refer to things in my life as pre-crisis pre or post-crisis, <laughs> because that's how much it kind of, you know, planted the seed to change directions in life for me. You study so much around great, great ancient wisdom traditions and history. Have you found this as a common theme throughout everything that you've looked at over the years that people go through these existential crises, or is this a, a more modern day thing that we're experiencing? It's definitely, um, it's definitely something that you see as a pattern throughout history. So you could reference Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. 
you could reference um, even in, you know, indigenous cultures and things like that. You've got rites of passage and rituals and things um, growing, you know, from childhood into adulthood. You've got things. I actually just went down a deep dive uh, into there's a concept called transformative learning. And sure enough, the thing that kicks off a transformative learning process is what the uh, the creator of the theory, his name is Jack Mesero, what he calls a disorienting dilemma. Hmm. And that disorienting dilemma can be something that he calls apocal, which can be like this sudden thing, kind of like an existential crisis, or it can be something that is a slow, gradual thing where it just kind of builds up over time and and is something that you then have to address once it's there. So it can come in many different shapes and forms, but I think it's a recurring pattern that you see throughout history. Um, whether or not it's you know in higher prevalence today or a higher percentage of people are going through it, I'm not exactly sure. But because the volume of humans on the planet is more than it's ever been, even if the percentage is the same as the past, that's a higher volume of people that are going through it today, which could be why more people are searching out answers for something like this. Mm. You, you've brought a purpose and trying to discover that and, and create that for yourself a few times now. Do you battle with like lack of focus, self-doubt, anything like that that imp impedes the creative process? I did have, um, this was an interesting aha moment. And again, a lot of these dots that I connect even about myself and my own journey, they're all connected looking back, right? It's all a reflection uh, process of, of looking back and connecting the dots. And sure, there can, there can be moments of self-delusion and narrative bias and things like that. But when you look back and connect the dots, um, you realize things that you didn't realize when you were in the midst of it. Hmm. And and so that's that's been a really... Uh, insightful thing for me because I could have never told you from the get-go, you know, this is my purpose in a single sentence or, um, you know, this is what I'm going to be working on next. It's kind of like this just life is happening and unfolding and I'm kind of going along with the flow and seeing where it leads. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but uh, no, we can I, dive deeper if you yeah, want. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious day to day. Right. Um, like, are there times where you're not having that? It's not as easy to sit down and can read the book and do the recap. Like, do you wrestle with that at all? Or are you kind of like, nope, I every day I kind of sit there and it's pretty easy. I'm just curious. Yeah. For the first two years, at least one or two years, I had pretty big imposter syndrome. Um, so even though I felt like I always had these entrepreneurial dreams and I, I thought I was an entrepreneur at heart, going from a 10 year career to solopreneurship took more of an adjustment period than I even realized when I was in that adjustment period. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after the fact where I realized uh, I didn't even launch a paid product on the website for the first two years, I don't think, um, because I figured if I gave everything away for free, nobody could criticize anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was just a byproduct of imposter syndrome of not having come to grips with myself yet of like, oh, no, you're actually an entrepreneur now. And uh, it's okay to charge for things. And, um, and so it's this evolving relationship with money of going from, you know, I, I would say I had a non-relationship or dysfunctional relationship with money throughout my career and all the lifestyle inflation pieces and figuring out intentional living. And then I went through this money aversion phase. And I'll never forget, I actually read the Tao Te Ching uh, a couple years uh, into my journey. And um, there's a quote, I read the Stephen Mitchell version, and he has a quote, something along the lines of, uh, aversion is the flip side of greed, the same desire just from a different direction. Hmm. And that was really interesting to me because obviously everybody understands the greed side of money, but the aversion side of money is something that I was dealing with when I first left my job of oh, I'm just not going to charge for anything and then, you know, every, everything will be fine. No one will, no one will criticize me. 
And this gets into something even deeper where my whole life had always been my work was attached to my self-worth. And that was a really eye-opening moment of, uh, and that's why I was never primarily motivated by money. I was always primarily motivated by doing good work because my self-worth was directly tied to the quality of work that I was putting out. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big uh, self-learning or some people call it shadow work and things like that. Uh, big self-learning about myself. But um, I definitely went through the imposter period phase. And then just in terms of day-to-day -day life now, I would say, um, there, of course, there are days just like everybody has where you feel like you have less energy or whatever else. But um, I, I usually, from a reading perspective, have at least two books going at the same time. And sometimes you're in the mood for one book. And sometimes you're in the mood for the other book. Sometimes you start with one and then you're like, eh, I'm really not feeling this right now. So you flip over to the other one. Um, but by having a few things going on at any given time, you can kind of toggle between them and work on whatever you feel is most alive at that given moment. Mm. Go, go further there on what you're feeling is most alive at the moment. Yeah. So, I mean, there are days where I'm like, man, I just really don't want to sit here and read all day today <laughs> or, 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 uh, or, or I want to, or it could be, it could not be a negative thing. It could actually just be, man, I really feel like working on everything today, but which is the one thing that I can't not do right now? Hmm. Like, which is the one thing that feels most alive? And there's that intentional double negative again of, I just, I, I don't know. It's just, there's something pulling me in this direction. I got to work on this thing right now. It just feels really alive right now. Um, so that kind of gives you, if, if you listen to that and listen to yourself, it'll kind of allow you to flow in the direction of where you are kind of naturally going anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, I just came across this. Uh, I think it was an Alan Watts thing. I just came across this again this week where he says it's life is less about rowing and more about sailing. And so it's that idea of, okay, well, what, which way is the wind blowing? Which way is the ocean moving? Um, where are my interests and my internal motivations uh, going at the moment and, and just kind of listening to that and following that a little bit more instead of trying to force something, you know? Yeah. I, I would love to know for you, you mentioned Alan Watts. I know you have a ton of amazing resources on the website about Alan Watts. Who are the thinkers? What are the things that you've done that you just have been, let's just call it full aliveness? Are, are there people, books, things that you look back to and say, you know what, that still lights me up inside. Oh yeah, there are there are many. Um, in terms of people, I would say uh, Maria Popova was a big influence for me. Um, at some point, I also came across Brian Johnson of Optimize, who is now running Heroic. Uh, Shane Parrish of Farnham Street, um, and then people like Abraham Maslow, um, Anthony DeMello. Uh, more recently, I've been into Rupert Spira. Um, in terms of thinkers, uh, David Bohm. David Bohm is probably the best example that I've come across of someone who has bridged the gap between science and spirituality better than anybody that I've ever seen. Hmm. He had 25 years of conversations with Jiddu Krishnamurti, um, these like recurring conversations that they would have. Um, and I wish more people would do that today. You know, where's where's a leader in science and a leader in spirituality having you know 25 years worth of recurring conversations? Yeah. It's a fascinating thing. Um, but honestly, the, the list is so long. And um, in terms of books, I think from I'm not a big rereader of books. Um, this is one of the reasons why I take notes directly in the author's words. So that way I already have kind of a condensed version of the book that if I if I want to revisit it, I can just revisit those notes. Um, but the only two books that uh, I have intentions of rereading at this point, uh, I've actually already mentioned, which are Early Retirement Extreme 
Um, there's just so much in that book that it's re- that it requires a rereading. And then uh, the Tao Te Ching, which uh, is kind of the complete flip side of Early Retirement Extreme. But um, but those are the two books where I'm like, well, okay, these books definitely deserve a reread. Uh, but I have uh, I have some pages on the website where I list all of my book recommendations and um, and really it just depends on on what people are interested in. Because again, you know, at one phase in your life, you'll be interested maybe in intentional living or life purpose, or maybe you're already into the spirituality side or psychology. And by investigating one of those, it leads you to all of them. So there are many on-ramps to the highway of interdisciplinary learning. Yeah, it's so funny, Kyle, your site, slow.co. It's one of those things, like no matter where I'm at, what deep question I'm asking, that's the site I go to because I'm like, yep, there's going to be resources there that are going to help me in this journey. That, that's what I appreciate so much. But but speaking of just like being helpful throughout the journey, what do you still or what other obstacles did you find throughout the slow journey? Like, are you, are you still battling with, with internal struggles today? Anything like that, that has just been challenging? Uh, let's see. We, we talked through the imposter syndrome piece. I'm, I'm sure, and this, this is another kind of takeaway is I'm sure I'm struggling with something right now and I'm in the midst of something that I won't see clearly until later. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those things where, uh, there's probably something going on and then I'll be able to reflect on, let's say a year or two from now. And I'm like, Oh, when I had that podcast with Sean, <laughs> yeah. So maybe it's one of those things where I'll have to follow up with you and we can have a round two where I'm like, Hey, you know what? I was going through something at that time. But, um, I would say that the biggest thing right now for me is, uh, just figuring out how to get all the things done that I want to get done. Um, although, and, and if someone observed me, like an outside observer observed me today, they would say, wow, you work, you work a lot. And we talked about this of like, I feel like I'm playing a lot, but there, I've learned that there's a big difference between a busy life and a full life. And so a busy life, you know, is you just feel like you're drained and depleted at the end of each day and you don't have a lot of in, intrinsic motivation to do it and, and show up to do it. And you don't enjoy it that much. Whereas now, and that, and that was the life I was living, like definitely a busy life during my career. But now I feel like I have a very full life mm-hmm. in terms of, okay, yeah, I'm still, you know, quote unquote working a lot, um, but it doesn't feel like work at all. And I have so many projects that have just naturally emerged as a byproduct of all of this that it's like, okay, how do I, how do I prioritize these and, and, uh, and knock these out in a, in an order that makes sense. And not just for me, but for, you know, anyone following along as well. Hmm. I love that. What, what for you has allowed you to take action though, right? Like in living this way, that's what I'm trying to figure out because the, the way I, I'm just visual. So I picture there's this wall and this ceiling here where people like they hear you speak, they read your stuff and they're like, I know I should do this. But then you go like that and break through and other people don't. And I'm just wondering if there's anything, any, any tool inside that that you can give us to help us do that. Let's see in terms of, I actually get a lot of questions from people about pursuing solopreneurship or Mm -hmm. some type of entrepreneurship. And it seems like that is becoming in more, uh, an increasingly big interest in people's lives, especially now where you've got, you know, more and more companies that are bolting on purpose to the company and telling all the employees that they need to find purpose and things like that. And it's got people questioning, you know, well, what is my purpose? And is my purpose actually even at this company? So I've had a lot of people reach out to me probably more than anything else about, hey, how do I pursue something like you are pursuing? Um, And a lot of it comes down to that uh, lifestyle design and just plain old money factor of how do I, how do I make sure I just don't run out of money when I quit my job type of thing. Um, and so there were a couple of key points for me uh, on the journey. And one of them was, um, discovering intentional living, discovering the fire movement, 
uh, just understanding that there are other alternate paths out there than the one that you may have unconsciously been following your whole life up until this point. So those are big ones. Uh, The next one was because I worked for two and a half years during my career before quitting my career, um, I was able to save up what I call an entrepreneurial runway <laughs> to give me some some leeway in terms of, okay, I don't have to make money on day one out of the gate uh, when I pursue this thing. Um, and then the next one is, uh, I called it funding the fun, which meant I initially, instead of quitting my career, I thought I was going to just keep working my career and use my paycheck for my career to fund all of the entrepreneurial stuff that I wanted to do. Uh, but obviously that didn't pan out for too long. It did for a couple of years, but not for the long run. Uh, and then that simple entrepreneurial math of, you know, if you can, if you can design your life in a way where, um, you can get your expenses down to something that's more manageable, then you have a higher likelihood because if you're, a, you know, every entrepreneur has to start at zero. Um, and then if you're bootstrapping versus going for venture capital or something like that, uh, or if you want to be intentionally a small business or even a solopreneur, it's one of those things where, you know, it's just, it's just simple math. Um, and that's kind of the, the benefit of it too, is that, you know, if you can make the math work, then you can make the lifestyle work. Well, one of the things you brought up there a second ago that I think is very important is understanding that there's not one path, there's multiple paths. And there were, there were a lot of options that got us here, even though we took one path, but moving forward, there are multiple paths. There's an infinite number of options. And there's also multiple paths that can bring a lot of joy, fulfillment. Um, it, it's one of the things I see a lot of people get segmented into and thinking there's only one way. And if they don't find that one way, then life is a, a total failure. And that's just not the case. There, there's so many options. So I, I just wanted to highlight that. One of the things I want to hear you talk about, though, is, is the lottery of birth. I know this is something that's had a tremendous impact on you. So what is it? I want to dive into this. Yeah, absolutely. Um so the lottery of birth is a concept I discovered maybe a year or two ago. And again, you'll, you'll hear this constant theme over and over of, you know, I'll discover a concept or be thinking about a question or something and it, it will just plant a seed in, in my mind. And then I might leave that concept for, you know, months or even years, and then maybe it'll germinate and develop and maybe it won't. And then sometimes it'll just bloom and blossom. And, and a lot of that happens because I'll come across something different that'll connect me back to that seed that had been planted. And so that happens all of the time where I can't remember where I initially heard of the lottery of birth, but um, the idea is that you didn't choose any of your nature or any of your nurture. um, And you can validate this for yourself. So I actually have a post on the slow website where I've dissected everything I can think of about myself in terms of my nature. So by nature, you're talking about things like genetics and biological sex and race and things like that. Uh, And, uh, in terms of nurture, you've got things like geographic location, uh, which you didn't choose, the time period in which you were born, which you didn't choose or control, your parents, um, your parents' wealth, um, the educational opportunities that your parents put you into or didn't put you into, any traumatic experiences you've had in your life. Um, and I've actually, <laughs> this is kind of a little bit of tangent, but I just read the book Live Wired by David Eagleman. Mm-hmm. And so much of what he talks about from a neuroscience perspective in terms of how the brain develops um, your brain, uh, your genetic or your genome is like 20,000 to 25,000 genes, but then the neurons that you have in your brain, it's like 86, what billion or trillion. Um, so it's exponentially more, but you have to have the real world environment and experience to unpack the biological brain. Um, and so the whole, but the whole idea of the lottery birth is that you didn't pick any of that stuff or choose any of that stuff. And so what does that, what does that mean? And once you start this, this kind of gets into what I call slow stage three, which is all the mental and mind stuff of, well, 
where does your identity come from when you and and when does it come up in your life when you don't remember being born? Uh, most people don't remember their first memory until they're two to four years old. It's called childhood amnesia. And when I think about my own life, I can't remember my first memory. Uh, but this is kind of one of those uh, thought experiments or, or um, things that you can directly validate for yourself through your own lived experience. You know, ask yourself all these questions of, do I remember being born? Did I choose my parents? Did I choose where I was born? Did I choose to be wealthy or in poverty? Did I choose to have a good education or not? Um, and you start realizing that you didn't actually pick any of these and aren't responsible for those. But all of those things are implications and have consequences downstream for re really the remainder of your life. And so there's another way to, to think about this from a more thought experimenty perspective. And this was popularized by Warren Buffett. He calls it instead of the lottery of birth, he calls it the ovarian lottery. And the idea is imagine that you um, you're going to be born in 24 hours and you don't know what position in society you're going to get. You don't know who you're going to be born as you have a one right now. You have a one in eight billion chance of being born as you again. Mm -hmm. So the odds are not in your favor that you're going to be born as you again. Um, and you have the power to design society however you would like. So in 24 hours, you're going to be born. You don't know what biological sex, race, wealth, parents, geographic location, any of that stuff you're going to be. How would you how would you design society based on not knowing what position you're going to get in society? Um, and I think this comes from John Rawls thought experiment called the original position thought experiment or the veil of ignorance thought experiment, which means you're choosing a lottery ball, one out of eight billion lottery balls, and you don't know which one you're going to get. So how do you how would you design a society knowing you have no idea who, who you're going to get in that society? And it's just a really interesting thought experiment that I've kind of just been marinating on over the last uh, at least year in a more uh, more deep way. But um, what are yeah, some of that's kind of thoughts? like what are some of the deep thoughts that come to mind? Well, for me, I, I feel like I've just realized really clearly that I didn't choose any of those things. And once you realize those it gives you a different relationship with your socialization and your conditioning and your wiring and things like that. So in terms of, um, in terms of thinking that you are your thoughts or you are your mind, you can now take your mind as like an object and view it as, okay, I know I'm not my thoughts, but I can now look at them. And by, ha by having awareness and being able to observe something like your mind or your thinking or your thoughts, it changes your relationship with those things. And so before you thought you were your mind, you know, this is why there's so much polarization in the world right now, based on the level of psychological development uh, in mass, they're just a total number, a high number of people that believe that they are their minds, which means if you attack an idea that they have, you are attacking them, you're attacking their identity, because those ideas are equivalent to their identity. But once you start to be able to view these, you could imagine like viewing it from a higher level, um, you realize that, oh, no, I, the only reason I have these ideas or thoughts in the first place is because of my lottery of birth. <laughs> I, I got these ideas. You know, this is why some people have, uh, you know, more extreme conditioning or um, whether or not someone grew up religious or spiritual or, um, you know, whether or not there, there's an example of this that uh, David Eagleman talks about in his book, uh, Live Wired, where if you are born into poverty, you actually learn a smaller vocabulary. And if you learn a smaller vocabulary, then you're going to get worse grades in school. 
And if you get worse grades in school, then you're going to have less job opportunities. And if you have less job opportunities, then you're going to uh, make less money over your career and all, the, all those types of things. So there are all these just interconnected consequences and, and how it shakes out. But I would just encourage, I have a ton of posts on the site uh, about this concept, and I would just encourage people who are interested in it to just check those out. And, um, and there are TED Talks on it and, and a number of videos on it. And it's just, it just blew my mind when I came across it. Yeah, believe me, if you're listening, check the show notes. We're definitely going to have a lot of these linked up, especially the Ikigai 2.0, because uh, I think that's just been so impactful for me. And I know a lot of other people uh, that's that's been really impactful for. But Kyle, say you could do this, interview anyone dead or alive. Who would you love just to sit down with for an entire evening and just ask any question you could have? Oh, man. Hmm. So I'm really fascinated by deep thinkers. That's probably that's probably the first. I, I guess I'll talk out loud through my thought process of how I would even get to someone. Um, so I would want someone who would kind of challenge my own thinking, you know, in a new way, help me see something in a different way. And uh, so I would I would kind of start a filter criteria of deep thinkers and then filter that down. Um, I would I would try to pick someone who I felt like was pretty psychologically developed, um, maybe even what I would consider enlightened. Um, so man, I don't know. I'd probably pick like someone like Jesus or Buddha or Ramana Maharshi or um, someone who is just kind of at that that far end of you know beyond so far beyond what I feel like even I'm at psychologically uh, developed from that perspective. Um, someone that would just blow my like you know a single conversation would just blow your mind with them because their lived their lived experience of reality would be so different from yours um but i feel like i have the tool set now based on what i've learned to be able to at least intellectually understand where they're coming from mm -hmm. whereas in the past i probably would have viewed it as you know this is why some people who are considered enlightened are considered psychotic or um you know there's a difference between uh the mystic, I can't remember the quote exactly, but like there's a difference between the mystic and the sage. And it's like this fine line. <laughs> um, but I would probably pick someone who's so far out there um, that it, it would just be so mind expanding for me that it would be a once in a lifetime opportunity. Any modern day sages? Hmm. In terms of modern day people, I would love to have a conversation with. Um, I'd love to have a conversation with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Um, I think his mind is just fascinating. Um, I'd love to have a conversation. Him? That's a good question. Uh, one of the most impactful things I've learned from him is the idea of a mimetic immune system or epistemic immune system. So how you, how you keep your mind strong enough to be able to repel all the nonsense out there, filter good information, uh, again, synthesize in an effective way. So I'd probably ask him something about, you know, how do we, how do we build a better mimetic immune system for society? Uh, both individually and collectively and get his thoughts on that. He has, he has probably one of the most interconnected and networked minds of any living person that I've come across. Um, Suzanne Cook Reuter, uh, who created ego development theory based on Jane Lovinger's work uh, from decades ago. Um, her work has been really impactful uh, for me from a psychological development perspective. So I'd love to have a conversation with her. Um, Michael Levin is someone totally different from the, how I spend my day-to-day -day life, but more in the science and biology realm. Um, he's fascinating. Robert Sapolsky, again, from a biology and free will perspective would be fascinating. He has a new book coming out later this year in October. Um, 
but yeah, this is this is what I this is a lot of what I do in terms of my weekly newsletter is I try to I try to find these people, curate these people, and surface these people to uh, the audience that follows slow. Mm -hmm. So I try to find these people just based on my own self-interest and learning and things like that. And then I kind of surface these up to everybody else. But um, there, there are so many, Maria Popova, there are so many countless people. Uh, Maria would be fascinating because she doesn't share a lot of her personal life mm -hmm. um, and has talked about that quite a bit. So I'd love to talk to her more about her personal life. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a long list. Yeah, no, that the curious mind uh, is coming through here. Yeah, Kyle, there, there's probably three or four newsletters that I've subscribed to and looked at pretty much every single week for the past few years. And yours is one of them. And that's a testament to you, the way you think, the work you do. Uh, so I just appreciate that and would love to direct the listeners. Obviously, we're going to have a bunch linked up, but anywhere you want them going specifically to, to stay connected with you and the work you're doing. Yeah, the best way to stay in the loop is to go to slow.co, and that's slow with two W's, S-L-O-W-W. -W. Um, and then on there, you'll see a link to uh, the newsletter, which I call Slow Sunday. And I try to send it every week. There are some weeks that I just don't discover a ton of new stuff or I don't get my work done. <laughs> so there might be a week off here and there, but it's it's mostly a weekly newsletter. Uh, but that's the best way to stay in the loop with everything else. And then from a social media perspective, um, I'm most active on Twitter, but I also have profiles on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Uh, because I do a lot of infographics and things like that and, and try to condense a lot of the text content into a single image and, and uh, make it more shareable that way. But uh, yeah, best way is to check out the website and subscribe to the newsletter. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.